0: Today's scripture comes from Genesis 18, verses 20 to 33. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. The grass withers and the flowers fade.
1: All right, happy Sunday, everyone. My name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors uh, at Exilic, and I wanna welcome you to our church, Uh, especially if it's your first time here. uh, We're grateful that you could join us today. Uh, In 2019, there was a movie that came out that was called Farewell, that was directed by Lulu Wang. And the movie featured a lot of Asian-American actors and actresses, one of whom was Aquafina, who plays a character in the movie named Billy. And Billy is this Chinese-American who lives in New York City. And she finds out that her grandmother in China, her 94-year-old grandmother in China, has stage four cancer and has only a short time to live. The problem is no one in her family wants to tell the grandma that she's dying. And if you've seen the movie before, it's this interesting cocktail of different cultural motifs and themes, oftentimes that butt heads together, uh, one, of, one of which is the differences of values between the East and the West. And in one of the scenes in the movie, there's this powerful scene where Billy confronts her uncle and she says to him, why aren't we telling grandma that she's dying? And I want to read you an excerpt from that scene. Billy says to her uncle, "Uh, are you going to tell nai nai? And Uncle Hyben says, Billy, there are things you must understand. You guys moved to the West long ago. You think one's life belongs to oneself. But that's the difference between the East and the West. In the East, a person's life is a part of a whole family, society, you want to tell Nai Nai the truth because you're afraid to take responsibility for her because it's too big of a burden. If you tell her that you don't have to feel, if you tell her, then you don't have to feel guilty. We're not going to tell, we're not telling Nai Nai because it's our duty to carry this emotional burden for her. Now, to be clear, I love Western culture and I love certain aspects of individualism. But I also value Eastern culture as well. And as someone that is bicultural, this is one of the advantages that we have as Asian Americans, Latino Americans, African Americans. When you live a hyphenated life, you understand the pros and cons of both cultures, and you can apply the pros of those cultures uh, into your life. And so there are certain aspects of Western culture that are really good. There are certain aspects of Eastern culture that are really good. One aspect is corporate responsibility. Now, much like individualism, there are certain aspects of individualism that are good and bad. And with corporate responsibility, there are certain aspects of it that are good and bad as well. And we can debate whether Billy was right or Billy's family was right for not telling their grandmother another time. But what we cannot debate about is the importance of corporate responsibility. The black community has forever talked about the importance of corporate responsibility. The East has talked about the importance of corporate responsibility. But you know what? Scripture also talks about the importance of corporate responsibility. And as followers of Jesus then, You not only have a corporate responsibility to your family and friends alone, but you also have a corporate responsibility to your church, but not only to your church, but also to the city that you live in as well. Now, where am I getting this from? Take a look with me at verse 20 and 21. And it says this, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, if you've ever read the Bible before and you've heard about the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, typically when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, you think about sexual kinds of sins. We'll talk about that next week. But if you're only gonna talk about sexual sins regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, that is a very myopic and limited picture of what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Why do I say this? This word that is used here for uh, outcry, this is a cry of injustice. So this word outcry, whenever you see it in scripture, typically it comes from the voices of those that are marginalized and oppressed. More often than not, by orphans and widows that are crying out about injustice because they're experiencing a denial of basic human rights. Now, how do we know this? Ezekiel 16:49, it says this. Now, this was a sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help. The poor and the needy. So, again, this is very much a justice word. The reason why God is outraged by the outcries of the poor and the needy is because the people in Sodom and Gomorrah did not have a sense of corporate responsibility for the marginalized, the weak, and the oppressed in their city. But they were unconcerned and neglected them because they were far too busy living their own autonomous, individual lives. And the question that I want to ask all of us here today is this. Do you have a sense of corporate responsibility, not just for your family and friends, but in particular for those that are poor, needy, and oppressed, the marginalized in our city? Or would you say, based upon the way that you're living your life right now, the way that you use your energy, time, talents, and money, would you say that you're too busy living your own autonomous individual life to actually have a sense of corporate responsibility for those that are in our city? Every ministry at Exilic is very important. But one of the most important ministries at our church is our justice ministry, which we started during the pandemic. But here's the perpetual challenge that our justice ministry will experience and face, and they know this. The perpetual challenge that our justice ministry will face is this, will our people care about injustice when there is no AAPI hate? Will our people care about injustice when there is no pandemic? Will our people care about injustice when there is no hotly contested and debated election? Will our people care when there's a migrant crisis? Will our people care when when there's homelessness, poverty, trafficking? Or is justice going to be one of those things that's just kind of like window dressing on our website where we act like we care about it, but we really don't care about it? I think one of the many perks of having a justice ministry is that our justice ministry continually reminds us, as uncomfortable as it might be to even hear, it continually reminds us of the corporate responsibility that we have particularly to the poor and the needy that are in our city. The vision of Exilic cannot simply be to build a great church and not a great city, nor can our vision be flipped where we want to build a great city and not a great church. Selfishly, it's got to be a combination of both. And as followers of Jesus, then, we have a corporate responsibility for the city that God has placed us in. And I realize that even as I say this, there's a tugging in your heart, right? because you want to live your life on your own. Don't guilt me into thinking like I have to take care of all these other people in our city. There's that tension that's there that we all face, right? Including me, in my own heart. I was listening to a podcast with a um, British agnostic actor and a uh, scientist at Oxford who was a Christian and an academic. So here you have an agnostic actor and a, um, a theologian scientist. are having this conversation about life. And the agnostic actor uh, says this about atheism. He says that my fear of atheism is that if there is nothing else, then why not materialism? Why not individualism? Without a deeper truth for me, there is only hedonism, only indulgence. And what this agnostic actor is basically saying is this, if atheism is true, then why should I give a rip about anyone else? I should just live my own life, you know, take care of myself, my family, my friends. Why live? Why why have this corporate sense of responsibility for the city that I live in and the world that I live in? And I think this is where the negative aspects of individualism, there are many positive aspects to it. But this is where the negative aspects of individualism are, is tearing the fabric of our families, our friends, our churches, and our city. And this is why it's not unusual today for even Christians today to say, I need Jesus, but I don't need the church. What is that? That's autonomous individualism, despite the fact that Scripture says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Corporate responsibility that we all have. I want to show you a a very simple chart uh, by John Stott in his seminal book, Basic Christianity. And he talks about simply how we should live. It's a very simple chart. And Stott says that the way that God designed us to live is very simple, firstly for God, secondly for others, lastly for ourselves. What sin does is that it typically counterfeits and reverses orders on everything. And so the sin, sin, the way that sin w- wants us to live is primarily for ourselves, then for others, and then for God. As you look at this chart, and as you think about your own life, how you spend your calendar, your time, your energy, your money, your gifts, your talents, week to week, which side of this chart best symbolizes the way that you're living your life right now? Which one? And if we're all honest, there's a part of us that it's hard to associate or live like the column on the left because sin is within us. And we want to live for ourselves. We don't want to live for other people. But here's the thing. The reason why we feel like that is because this individualism that we have inside of us, it is not rooted in being anti-community. Individualism is not rooted in being anti-community. We all love community. Individualism is not rooted in being anti-community, it is rooted in being anti-authority. Don't tell me how to live my life. You or God, I get to decide how I wanna live my life and how I wanna spend my time. And because the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were highly individualistic, and they lacked a sense of corporate responsibility for those in our city, God was about to bring judgment on these, two, uh, on these twin cities. However, in verse 23, we see a pivot take place. And it says this, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Uh, Sorry, uh, then approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Now take a look at the word approach. This word here doesn't mean that Abraham was 10 feet away and he approaches God five feet closer. It has nothing to do with physical proximity so much as it is a legal term. Abraham is bringing a legal case to God like a lawyer approaching the bench. And so he's approaching the bench on behalf of his clients who are Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's approaching God because there's something that he assumes about the character of God, and that is this. If you're a judge that is about to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, for a judge to be a judge, to have any sense of authority, it means that they kind of understand the difference between right and wrong. Otherwise, you're not qualified to be a judge. You should know the difference between bad and good. And so he's approaching God this way. He's assuming that God has a sense of morals and ethics. Alistair McIntyre, Scottish philosopher, in his book, Whose Justice, Whose Rationality, says this, Our understanding of justice depends on our beliefs about right and wrong, the nature of virtue, the relationship of the individuals to the group, and many other things. Our understanding of justice depends about our beliefs between right and wrong. This is also why the political philosopher at Harvard, Michael Sandel, who some of you might know of, Sandel says that justice is inescapably judgmental. When you're making a judgment on something, you're saying that that's right, that's wrong, that's good, and that's bad. Now I want you to think about justice Judgment, ethics, and morality from a secular point of view. And in his book, Making Sense of God, Keller writes this, If in the secular view we have not been made for a purpose, then it is futile to even talk about moral good and evil. If there is no God, then evil and suffering and violence are perfectly natural. The weak are killed off, the stronger survive, that's the way the world is. There is no right and wrong, there is just what is. To believe that some things that happen are evil requires some supernatural standard of good, something from outside of nature by which to judge which natural things are truly natural and which things are unnatural. But as Nietzsche says, there is nothing outside of nature. This is why Nietzsche writes this, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way and only way, it does not exist. I was listening to a a lecture that uh, Keller was giving on morality and ethics some years ago, and he was sharing how one of the homework assignments that he gave to his students was for them to talk to their secular friends uh, and to ask them one simple question. And that simple question was this. How do you know the difference between right and wrong and who gets to decide? So the students really got it. So they all went and dispersed and had their conversations with their uh, secular friends and they asked them, so how do you know the difference between right and wrong and who gets to decide? And without fail, the, the most common response when the students came back and reported their conversation was this. If there is one question that ties secular people's tongues into a pretzel, it's questions on morality. How do we decide? what is right and wrong. And who gets to decide? Is is it the majority? Is it a certain ethnicity? Is it those that are powerful, powerless? Who really gets to decide what's right and wrong? And here, Abraham is assuming something about God as a judge. You're supposed to know the difference between right and wrong. And it would be wrong of you to sweep away the righteous because of the unrighteous. So he pleads on behalf of God based upon his very character as a judge. You're supposed to know something about this. But he not only pleads on behalf of God's sense of justice for the righteous, but he also pleads on behalf of God's mercy too. So if you read 24 and 25, it says this. What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing—to kill the righteous with the wicked, the uh, the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you! Will not the judge of all the earth do right? There's two fascinating things that are happening here. Number one, Abraham reverses what God says. God says, "I will destroy the city because of the unrighteous." Abraham says, will you save the city, though, because of the righteous? Is it possible that because of the righteous few, they can save the unrighteousness of the many? What does that sound like? Is it possible that the righteousness of the few can save the unrighteousness of the many? Do you hear that echo, that story? The second fascinating thing that takes place here is this. Abraham isn't just praying to God. He's priesting to God. Now, I realize that if you've grown up in a Protestant church your whole life, you might be a little bit uncomfortable with the word priest. But 1 Peter 2.9, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. All of us here are priests. And what does a priest do? They stand in the gap as a middleman, as a mediator between one party and another, And what is Abraham doing here? He is standing in the gap as a mediator. He's priesting on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's interceding on their behalf. And what does it mean to intercede? You're praying for the favor of another party. And so Abraham felt the corporate responsibility to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And my question to all of us here today is this. Do you feel a corporate responsibility to be a priest to stand in the gap, to intercede on behalf of New York, or not? Uh, To give you a little bit of a background on my story, uh, I grew up about 25 minutes outside of New York City, and then I went to college one hour away from New York City. So when I graduated from college, I wanted to get as far away as possible. I was sick of the winters, um, and, and I was sick of the humidity in the summer, so I wanted to get out of here as fast as possible. So when I graduated college, I not only uh, uh, moved to an, the other coast, I moved halfway across the world to China, okay, which is why my Chinese intonations are so great. Um, I moved, and I lived in China for two years, and then after I moved back, I moved to the West Coast, to Southern California for almost another 10 years. I had no plans of ever moving back here, okay? And then got through a massive curveball into my life, and that was my wife, Hannah. And she was like, I'm not moving out there. And so I was like, oh, shoot. And so I was like, I guess I'm moving back. And I came back kicking and screaming. You know, I was surfing, and I was enjoying the I was wearing sandals every day. I had no desire to move back. But something happened to me as we were dating, engaged, and married. I I began to see the city through my wife's eyes, who loves the city. And I began to appreciate the unparalleled energy that we have in our city. It is unparalleled. I began to appreciate all the creativity, the entrepreneurship, the ambition, the intelligence, obviously the food. In our city. But there is one thing that captivated my heart about our city more than anything else. You know what it was? It was the people in our city. That's why my idea of heaven on earth is bringing Southern California weather right here to all of us. It's the people in our city that made me fall in love with our city the most. Bill Crispin uh, once said this, in the country you have more plants than people. In the city, you have more people than plants. Since God loves people far more than plants, okay, settle down if you're super green, he loves the city far more than the country. And to be clear, this is not urban propaganda, okay? God is not, Crispin is not saying that God loves an urban way of life more than a suburban way of life what Crispin is saying here is that God loves people. And there are more people here per square foot than any other city in America. Uh, Pastors oftentimes ask me, what is it like ministering in New York? And one of the things that I often say is it's very different than ministering in any other city in America, because every other city in America, Atlanta, Chicago, Philadelphia, LA, they're really just gigantic suburbs. New York City is the only city in America that, is true, that truly resembles an international city, much like London, Tokyo, Seoul, Paris, in terms of its density and diversity. And that's why God loves the city. Because as magnificent as mountains are and as beaches are, there is nothing more magnificent than you. You are the apex of God's creation. This is why C.S. Lewis oftentimes said, if you were aware of how magnificent the person next to you is, if you were truly aware of it, you would be tempted down to worship them. That is how magnificent every single one of us are. But generally speaking, there are three attitudes that we have towards the city. The first is we romanticize the city. This is typically transplants. Transplants who are enamored by Home Alone, the Christmas lights, uh, the prestigious universities, the jobs, building your portfolios, the food, and you love the city, but you're not really here to serve the city. You're here to consume the city and what it has to offer to use the city, but you're not really here to give back to the city. You're here really for your own autonomous individual self. The second posture that we can have is the one that I had growing up, It was a disdain for the city. It's dirty, it's competitive, it's expensive, the weather, on and on, you could could care less if God burns down New York just like Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a disdain that you have for the city. The third posture that you can have is a genuine love for the city. And again, I am not just talking about an urban way of life, but I am talking about all the uh, people in our city because guess what, if our city doesn't thrive, We're not going to thrive. And if our churches don't thrive, I don't think our city will thrive either. And so in many ways, it's got to be a collaboration of both things. And this is why Abraham is priesting. He's standing in the gap, interceding on behalf of the oppressors and even the oppressed. And he says to God, what if there are 50 righteous people? Are you really going to sweep it away? And then he says, 45, 40, do I hear 30, 20? And it almost sounds like an auction. Where, God, where Abraham is, like, negotiating with uh, God. I remember when I was reading uh, this text this week, I was reminded of my daughters because every time they, I, they watch an episode of Bluey, I'd be like, all right, girls, you can just watch two episodes. And without fail, after they um, watch both episodes, without fail, they will look at me and be like, Daddy, can we just watch one more? And uh, because I have the backbone of a jellyfish... I'm like, fine, just one more. And then they'll watch one more and they'll be like, daddy, can we watch one more? And because I have no backbone at all, I'll let them watch one more. I'll I'll say it sternly, not that they're intimidated, but um, they'll always ask for one more. And that's what Abraham is doing here. But God, what about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? But here's the thing. Every time I read this story, The thing I think about is, why did you just stop at 10? Uh, Tim Keller says that it almost sounds like an unfinished symphony. Why not go all the way to one? And there's lots of different theories theories that I won't bore you with. But I think the reason why Abraham stops at the number 10 is because this is the way that God wanted the story to be told. And he wanted us to imagine The next step would be to imagine, but what if there was one? What if there was one righteous person that could save a world of unrighteousness? What story does that sound like? What is it ultimately pointing to? Because guess what? There was no righteous person in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We talked about Abraham last week and what he did to Hagar, What he did to his own wife. Lot's righteousness was not enough either, nor his family's. But is there a person whose righteousness could actually save the world? In Romans 3.10, it says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. But there is one who can save us, one who is truly righteous, and that is Jesus. When you take a look at the New Testament, There are only three times that Jesus weeps. One of the times that Jesus weeps is when he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem because of their unrighteousness. And because he felt a corporate sense of responsibility to the city, he mourns on behalf of the wickedness and unrighteousness that is taking place there. But unlike Abraham, who could not save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus can. That word spare that is used there in Hebrew is actually the word forgive. And it is because of what Jesus did, who is the better Abraham, the better mediator, the better advocate, the better lawyer, he approaches the throne of God. And in an interesting twist in the gospel, this lawyer, our advocate, he trades places with the city, the guilty city so that all the judgment would fall upon him. The reason why we are spared is because Jesus did not spare his own life for us, but he was judged in our place because he didn't want to live for his individual self. But he felt a corporate responsibility for every single one of us because of the way that we live our lives. As autonomous, free individuals who are truly unconcerned and neglect the care of the poor and the needy. But he not only died for us, but he also lives to intercede for us as well. One of the, uh, one of the craziest stories is when Peter betrays Jesus three times, and the, chick, uh, the rooster crows, and The first thing that Jesus says to Peter after he betrays him is this, but I have prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you. Jesus not only died for us, but he continually lives to intercede for us, to pray on our behalf. And that's crazy to me because I don't pray enough. I don't talk to God enough which is weird because I go through a lot in life, and I know that you do too. But even when I don't pray, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father praying for me. And sometimes I don't even know how I feel, which is why I need help of other people to help me process what I feel, but Jesus knows how I feel and he is praying for me. He's also praying for you. In Hebrews 7, it says, because Jesus lives forever, unlike all the other high priests that die, he always lives to intercede for them. In Romans 8, Christ Jesus who died is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. How do you feel? I don't know if you've ever prayed with someone before that's praying for you. A couple days ago, we had a meeting. And uh, we prayed to adjourn the meeting, and then Heidi all of a sudden stops the meeting. She's like, ah, oh, we forgot to pray for Aaron's sabbatical. And then she prayed for me. How do you feel when someone is praying for you? I feel great. Because what that person is doing is they're advocating for you when they pray. This is why I encourage all married couples to pray together. That's way better than a trip to Paris. Because when you're praying for one another, you're advocating speaking, praying for God's favor to be on the other person. And this is what Jesus is doing for you and for me because of the corporate responsibility that he senses for us. And just as Jesus intercedes for us, guess what? That also means that as a royal priesthood, you have a corporate responsibility to stand in the gap to pray for the favor of our city, your family, your friends, your church as well. What if God has placed you in the city not just to use it and to consume it, but what if God has placed you in the city for such a time as this? To pray and to be an intercessor for our city as well. And my hope and prayer is that when God looks at our city, unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, where he's like, is there 50? Is there 40? Is there 30? My hope and prayer is that when God looks down at our city, he will not see 50 people, but he will see thousands of people who are willing to stand in the gap to pray for favor on behalf of our city. Thousands upon thousands, particularly because of our care and concern for the poor and the needy and the marginalized that are in our city. One practical thing that you can do is this. So every time I prep a sermon, I think to myself, is this actually gonna do anything? Like in all honesty, like are people actually gonna intercede and now pray for our city? Like will this sermon actually move people? I don't know. I got a text from someone after first service and they were like, it moved me. Um, I don't know if this will move you enough to be honest. And part of it is the Spirit's work in your life and it depends how fertile the soil is in your heart. So that's really up to you. I've done my part. But one practical thing that you can do is this, because I know that there's this kind of natural resistance to pray, it's, and it's hard to do it on our own, right? Next Saturday, and we do this every quarter, we have a prayer brunch. Not this Saturday, next Saturday right here, where we will pray and intercede on behalf of our city. Put it in your GCAL right now and just join us as we pray for our city. We do this once a quarter, and we made a commitment as a staff that even if one person shows up, it doesn't matter because it's not about how many people show up. What matters more is that we really do believe in the importance of interceding on behalf of our city. So I'm going to pass the ball to you. One practical thing you can do, come out next Saturday, 10.30 right here for some good New York bagels and prayer. Let's pray. Uh, God, it is my prayer that when it comes to matters of justice and injustice, again, that this would not just be window dressing, uh, but it would actually be something that we really do care about, particularly for the injustices that are happening in our city. And unlike the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were more concerned about their own individual lives it is my prayer that you would talk on our hearts and help us to realize that we all have a corporate responsibility for our family, our friends, our church, but also the city that we live in as well. So help us to be like Abraham who priested, who was a mediator and intercessor. Help us to be intercessors for the great city that we live in. In your name I pray. Amen.